Welcome to The Rejected Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Duhamel. This is a story-driven podcast on social rejection and ostracism within our communities. Thanks for joining me. On the show today is Professor Eric Wesselman. He is a professor of psychology at Illinois State University. Professor Wesselman, thank you so much for being on The Rejected Podcast. Oh, uh, Matt, thank you very much for having me on. Thank you for your time. When I heard that you can get beyond the show, I was very excited. I had uh, interviewed you for a documentary I did in 2017, so I'm glad I'm able to uh, talk to you again. Can you introduce yourself a little bit, and what do you do exactly at Illinois State University? So um, I got my PhD in social psychology, uh, and as a uh, professor and faculty member, I do a mixture of uh, both teaching and research. Uh, ostracism and social exclusion is a lot of what I've done uh, over the past uh, 15-ish years or so, uh, but I also like to dabble in a variety of other uh, topics as well, whatever catches my interests. What, what interests you about social ostracism? So I started, um, I got my master's degree looking at mental illness stigma, and Stigma is, we might consider, sort of a societal or systemic form of, of social exclusion. Um, but, uh, of course, that's a very specific one. And as I started thinking about it more, I started thinking about, okay, well, there are dynamics that are unique to this particular group and things that are unique to systemic forms of exclusion. But there are similarities that many people face in a variety of situations. Uh, and so um, I sort of really started to focus on this idea of what does it mean to feel like you are ignored? Um, and uh, that's essentially what I, I got my PhD uh, working with um, one of the, uh, with Dr. Kip Williams, one of the premier researchers on ostracism uh, in the world. Sure. Yeah, I'm familiar with. Uh, he was also on the documentary. That was great. So I'm hearing a lot of terms here. You know, I hear ostracism, I hear social rejection, stigma, and exclusion. Are these all the same terms for what we're talking about? Probably depends on who you ask. <laughs> um, I, I suppose among um, most academics in this space, um, they are interrelated. Um, they have their nuances, and a lot of that will depend upon you know, which researchers you talk to and which theoretical backgrounds uh, they come at it with. Um, I sort of see social exclusion as almost an umbrella term, uh, a definition I like that a couple of my colleagues, uh, Jennifer Eck and Paul, uh, Paulo Riva, uh, put forth is social exclusion is an experience when someone is made to feel physically or uh, emotionally separated from others. Uh, and then within that, there could be a variety of different ways that that could occur. Um, I, for example, choose to think of rejection as direct negative attention. Someone saying, you know, you get out of here. I don't want you around mm. um, as being sort of a prototypical case. Whereas um, another way of interpersonally feeling excluded uh, might, as opposed to having direct negative attention, maybe it's a lack of attention, right? Uh, where one is being ignored in some way. Uh, you come into a room and say hi and no one responds to you. You walk past someone um, on the sidewalk and you nod and smile and they just don't acknowledge your existence. Now, that could be accidental. 
it could be purposeful. Um, but that feeling of being ignored um, has sort of an additional qualitative experience to it, almost like an existential threat, right? If someone yells at me, calls me a name, tells me I'm not wanted, it's bad. I don't like it, but they at least acknowledged me. But to com- be completely treated as if one is invisible has an added layer of discomfort to it. Right now, these are all interpersonal. Um, other folks look at the concept of stigma, for example, and they ratchet that up from the interpersonal level to almost like a system level factor, uh, whether it be norms, laws, um, policies that essentially marginalize certain groups of folks for various reasons. Yeah, I, I can see that. So you have like the one time, you know, silent treatment on the street from somebody, you know, that doesn't say anything to your to your question or whatever, your response. Uh, and then you have a more intense, uh, I guess, stigma approach where groups of people uh, are ignored. And w- what type of groups do you think are more susceptible to of being ostracized? I would say that from a, uh, one would have to look at that individual culture. Uh, and find out where where is sort of the the power imbalance, right? Uh, groups that are generally devalued in some way by whatever cultural groups are in power. Um, it's the the folks who are uh, of lower status who are most likely uh, to be marginalized interpersonally and systemically. So we were talking before the podcast, before I started recording, and do you think? moral panic is involved, and we're talking about a specific group here, LGBTQ plus bills that are coming, anti-bills that are being passed uh, throughout the, the the country in record number, like 520 of them, I think, this year. This group, of course, is ostracized heavily. Do you think this is what is called a new moral panic? I think there are certain elements to it. I mean, it just as ostracism itself, any type of exclusion is a complex phenomena. When we start talking about politics, uh, it gets even more complicated. I think that for um, many of the regular citizenry who are in favor, uh, that you could certainly put this in the context of a moral panic because there's fear involved. You know, uh, a lot of uh, sort of, of knee jerk desire to avoid. That's how the rhetoric is being spun. Um, and it's for the particular folks who um, support this type of legislation. They do couch it in not just fear, but also moral terms. Um, for the folks who are passing the bills through, um, I think some of them, it may be similar reasons, but others, I think it also could be. Um, strategic, right? The in the current political landscape, um, there's a lot of f- focus on attempting to get power, right? And what are ways to, you know, energize a base to to get voters to care? Uh, and so, I think some some of the folks who are putting the bills through may not, you know, they may not even agree with it. Ultimately, um, they may just think, well, this is my best option to score political points with whomever I want to get their vote in some upcoming election. You know, I was reading an article just a few days ago. I don't know if you caught it. It said something about your life can be shortened or you are more susceptible to disease because of ongoing social rejection. Did you catch that? 
Um, yes. Uh, so um, I'm, I'm not sure of what specific article you're yeah. talking about now, but there is there's a, an ongoing body of research uh, in various different uh, labs across the globe. And what we see across these studies is that there are, in a short-term instance of exclusion, we have immediate um, sort of knee-jerk threat reactions, psychologically and physiologically. So, you know, cardiovascular output, uh, stress response, all of those things um, are increased in that short term. Uh, now, that's fine, I mean, from sort of a, a, a threat and almost like danger alarm perspective. When something threatens you, you go into fight or flight mode. Um, but that's meant to be biologically uh, a short-term thing, right? And so what happens if you are constantly in a state of chronic negative arousal, right? And that here we're talking about exclusion, but other researchers have looked at um, other types of trauma as well. It drops your immune system re uh, response. Um, so yes, it makes you more susceptible to, to getting sick. And there are a host of other negative psychological outcomes that we see from chronic uh, exclusion that all tie into shorter longevity. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, I know you know that. Security and freedom from danger are some of the uh, deficiency needs in someone's life. Uh, you know, if ostracism is taking away these needs, such as jobs, housing, food, whatever, do you think they may become angry enough to turn to violence? I, I think it's certainly possible. Um, the, you know, the, these particular questions are hard to study empirically um, in like laboratory research, right? Like we can, we can run studies where we or otherwise exclude um, participants one time and then give them the opportunity to aggress low level, something that's ethical, but still is, an aggressive act like forcing someone to listen to nasty noise uh, or eat hot and spicy food when they don't like it. And we consistently see increased aggressive behavior. Moving into um, violence now, uh, we have to deal with a lot more correlational data, right? Things that we can't make causal claims from, but seem to be moving in the same direction that we see experiments. And uh, Mark Leary, for example, uh, um, back in 2003 did a paper where um, he and his colleagues analyzed um, diaries, interviews, court transcripts, etc. from mass shootings that had occurred in the U.S. at that time um, and found that you know there were some various similarities across cases, but the most common similarity among uh, the perpetrators was that they either directly were excluded or they at least perceived they were. Now, that in and of itself isn't going to make someone commit violence, right? Unfortunately, there are lots of folks who are chronically excluded and many of them don't turn to violence. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the challenges for folks who are in that particular domain of research uh, is to, well, all of us really are, are to, is to try and figure out, well, what are the additional factors and ultimately how do we uh, address them socially? Is it true? I mean, social ostracism is never going away. I mean, it's not going to go away, but is it needed in society? Is it, is it a positive thing in any way? There may be situations, and this is for individuals and ultimately society to sort of work out. There may be situations where let's say someone is in a relationship 
with an abusive partner. And the only way to protect oneself from that abusive partner is to completely cut them out of their life, right? That's a situation where, is it good? Well, I mean, it, it certainly is a way of protecting oneself. Um, is it going to be painful to sunder that relationship? Yes, right? And so there's sort of no, there's no perfect solution to it. As individuals and as society, we need to be very intentional. You had mentioned uh, Dr. Kipling Williams at the the start of the uh, show here. You have worked alongside him, I believe. Did you work on the uh, Cyberball experiment? So the original Cyberball experiment, he published back in the early 2000s. He he developed that, uh, I think, when he was still in Australia. Um, I've done many Cyberball studies. in my during my time being mentored by him so i i certainly heard the stories of its creation (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's been a while it's been a while we were too young i think maybe i don't know uh (laughs) can you give our listeners what is the cyberball experiment experiment and when how does that measure uh ostracism so the cyberball study really was was created um as a digital analog for a real world experience Dr. Williams had when he was first trying to figure out how to study ostracism, you know, this, this type of social exclusion that involves being ignored. Um, he, he was trying to figure out how to do that in a laboratory setting because he's an experimental psychologist. He wants to make, you know, causal claim uh, arguments. Um, and he was outside with his dog and there were these two people playing Frisbee next to him. Never met them before. I never met him. Um, and their Frisbee accidentally landed near him. So he picked it up and threw it back to them. They quickly threw it back to him and included him in their game. Just a sort of a fun, a fun little haha, right? And they went back a couple times. And then after a few tosses, they just started throwing between themselves and they completely ignored him. And he was surprised by how much this bothered him because, once again, they were strangers. They had no reason to keep including him. Uh, and so as he left he and sort of went through this process of, of unpacking his feelings and ultimately recovering from that short-term slight, he thought, well, hey, now that's interesting because under this sort of minimal social experience, I was bothered or he was bothered. <laughs> um, and so that suggests something powerful about this desire to be included even minimally. Um, and so he then created a face-to-face version of this in his lab with a ball toss, uh, that involved, uh, student actors who were pretending to be real participants. And he, you know, consistently found that when participants were left out by a ball toss game, that they showed negative mood, uh, threats, their feelings of belonging, self-esteem, control, and meaningful existence. Uh, and again, this is with strangers. Um, and so that was a really cool demonstration, but not very easy to run multiple studies, the types of things that we would want to do in programs of research in psychology. You know, most, most psychologists try to replicate and extend their findings, um, before they publish. And then we also would like researchers in other labs across the U S across the globe, uh, to be able to replicate and and test the viability of our ideas of our conclusions in different cultural contexts all that's to say he needed to create a way to do that 
Um, and so he got some programmers to create a very basic ball tossing game um, uh, that people were either in the inclusion condition, they were the ball is evenly distributed between these avatars and the participant uh, in the ostracism condition. They get it once or twice at the beginning just to prove that they can. And then for the rest of the game, they're uh, completely um, uh, ignored by those other two uh, avatars. There's no tossing whatsoever. And most of the time, people are told, the participants are told, these are real people on the other end of the computer. But they've done studies where they're like, look, this is a computer program, right? Yeah, and even in yeah. those situations, people still get really angry when they're oh, left wow. out. Didn't some didn't some guy uh, that was doing the part of the experiment like flip off the camera or something? Yes, yeah, so I uh, I believe you can still find this footage um, on Dr. Williams' website. And I was in grad school when that happened. The study was being run by one of my colleagues, uh, and we had hidden a hidden camera in the lab. Uh, it was embedded in the speakers, and uh, just because we actually had that going for a different study, but um, uh, we decided to. You know, with the IRB's permission, um, also and and um, to uh, watch other uh, participants as well, and it happened to be on, and uh, my colleague noticed uh, this person. Uh, they started by um, laughing a little, um, and so we couldn't see the screen, but we could kind of guess by their reactions where they were in the game. And usually, when participants don't get the ball right away, uh, it's it's a violation of expectation, um, but you know, sometimes in, in real world games, the idea of keep away, like, hey, let's mix things up a little bit. Um, you know, maybe you're just kind of joking with me. Uh, and so we noticed this person laugh a little. And then mm -hmm. that laughter became less genuinely mirthful and a little bit more uncomfortable. And then they stopped smiling. They furled their brow a little bit and then flicked off the camera. Uh, and so there we might, we would call, you know, a, a aggressive response. Um, and then what we saw after that is the person kind of sat back and their face got numb. Huh? So emotionally there, there may have been some low angle, low level anger there, but there seemed to be this sort of almost giving up resigning of oneself to the situation in that moment, like accepting, right? accepting their fate or something. Yeah, like, all right, these people are just not going to include me. I don't know why. I'm just going to have to sit here till it's done. Okay. Oh, I, I, you know, you take that that image. Um, I'm I'm just picturing that that guy who you know is getting angry or just giving up. Uh, you know, you put that into a situation where someone's in society getting ostracized over and over every day for whatever reason, and wow, that would. That would be very, very challenging. I, I don't know what that would look like. No, yeah, and um, I mean it's it's a very, a very uh, sad uh, situation. Um, uh, early in Dr. Williams's career, uh, he did these um, interviews with uh, folks who had been experiencing long-term ex uh, ostracism or exclusion, uh, and in many of these uh, accounts are published in his book, um, and it, it really is heartbreaking to read, uh, these folks experiences. Uh, and that's, it was through those interviews that he really sort of started to develop this model of ultimately what led to the resignation stage, uh, portion of, of his three-stage model. So that there's that immediate reflex, uh, reflexive reaction, the physiological stress response, feelings of anger, 
of, of need threat. Um, then there's that second stage of, well, what happens now that I've noticed? How do I deal with this? How do I make sense of it? How do I try to recover from it in the short term? Oh, and by the way, anybody can do the Cyberball experiment online, right? I, I can include the link if that's true in the show notes. Well, so you can download it and, and try it yourself. Download yeah. it. Okay, cool. Um, and, you know, a lot of my focus on ostracism is uh, for individuals and families, you know, that are involved in the criminal justice system. So getting out of, of prison, I do want to mention this in this episode um, because it is, wow, the, the group of people are heavily ostracized when it comes to employment, you know, um, social circles and things like that. If someone is listening that have been in, has been involved in the criminal justice system, what advice do you have for them to deal with the rejection they may be facing? I would say, well, first and foremost, um, I would recommend seeking out uh, a therapist um, because after someone has been incarcerated, they are already dealing with mental health concerns and you know uh, adjustment concerns, uh, and so to add exclusion on top of that is only going to make it worse. So definitely uh, seek out a, a therapist, a counselor. Uh, it's easier said than done, of course, when it comes to like health insurance and all that stuff. But oh, gosh. Oh, uh, yeah, if you can find somebody to talk to you about this situation, uh, a professional, that's definitely the start. You may, I mean, you make a great point there too about, you know, what happens if, if those are, uh, resources are not available. There's always going to be somebody excluded some, somewhere, somehow. I don't think, I just don't think we can fix everything to where everybody feels included. And that's something, once again, we as a society has to have to, uh, we as a society, as any society, right? There are lots of societies. Uh, but if, if we consider ourselves folks who want to have as inclusive a society as possible, you know, we have to think very hard about how we approach that. And again, there may be certain decisions that we have to make collectively. You have a hard job. Yes. <laughs> I, yeah. I'm sure your students drive you crazy sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by the way, if people want to uh, learn more about this, of course, listen to the podcast, but is there a book that you recommend at all? So uh, the sort of a, a modern classic, and I, I guess full disclosure, uh, you know, Kip Williams, you know, uh, was my advisor, uh, although I get no kickbacks <laughs> from okay. his book. You're not getting paid. Uh, yeah. you know, he, he published that before. Uh, I, uh, you were in high school or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but but that's I feel like a, a great example of kind of the history of of certainly ostracism research in psychology, but also the various ways that that he approached studying it. What uh, is the name of the book again? That, that's just I think ostracism: the power of silence. Okay. Uh, if if I got that title wrong, uh, Kip, don't get mad at me. <laughs> I'm sure he's um, listening. <laughs> so. Um, but but that 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 is a good book. Um, uh, there's another book that I think is uh, was published in the the 2000s by John Cassiopo. But that one is just called Loneliness, uh, and that's a popular press book. Matthew Lieberman, uh, who's a social cognitive neuroscientist uh, out at UCLA, uh, and he did some work with Kip actually on looking at the neuroscience of what happens when you're excluded. Um, and the, the book is called Social, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Connect. And this was a book that, once again, is, is, is sort of popular press in the sense that it's written for a general public. But what I loved about the book was just the sort of fresh, unique way that 
he organized it philosophically that just really made me think of things in a completely different way. So and it's a quick read. Quick read for you, maybe, but not, <laughs> not for everybody else. No. True. Well, good resources there. Awesome. I'm going to check those out myself. I did have something on my Amazon cart. I don't know what it was, uh, but it was something about ostracism I wanted to order. So uh, I will put those in the show notes for people to link to. Uh, professor Eric Wesselman, thank you so much. You are the uh, professor of psychology at Illinois State University. I want to thank you again uh, for being on the show and giving us some great insight today. Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And I, I look forward to uh, your future episodes. More information about the show can be found at therejectedpodcast.com. I'm Matt Duhamel, your host. And remember... You're always welcome right here on The Rejected Podcast.